folks, welcome back to another episode of the Ubuntu Security Podcast. I'm Alex Murray. We're at episode 199. I can't believe we've almost done 200 of these, but uh, yeah, this week we are going to have a look at a recent blog post from uh, the Google security team talking about IOUring and I guess their approaches to that and some certain things that they've learned through their uh, vulnerability research program. And uh, Andre is back with another section uh, discussing a recent paper on fuzzing configuration of program options as well. But we will do the usual roundup of security fixes that have gone into the supported Ubuntu releases for the past week. So there were 53 unique CVEs addressed this week across a huge number of packages. So I'll try to be uh, kind of brief on this, but at least dig into a few as we go. Up first was an update for Assistat. Uh, this is uh, various system performance tools. In this case, there was an integer overflow leading to a possible buffer overflow, and it looked like the original fix for this was incomplete, and so then a second CVE was issued, and both of those have been fixed all the way back to our 14.04 release as part of uh, ESM or Ubuntu Pro, and the various LTS releases since that, uh, and actually interim releases as well, Kinetic and Luna 2. Netatalk was also updated for nine different CVEs here, and again going all the way back to 14.04. Uh, in this case, uh, Netatalk is the implementation of the Apple filing protocol and allows an Ubuntu server to share files with macOS clients. You can think of it as similar to using uh, Samba to share files with uh, Windows clients and the like. In this case, there was a heap of different buffer overflows. It looks like um, it wasn't bothering to check various input parameters from clients and the like. Most of these vulnerabilities appear to have been disclosed via ZDI, so Trend Zero Day Initiative. And a lot of them were missing length checks on the input data. Some were out of bounds write, others were out of bounds reads. Uh, I noticed actually, you know, Netatalk sounds like the kind of thing that would be amenable to being uh, sandboxed by something like AppArmor, but unfortunately there doesn't appear to be a profile for this, so that would certainly be an interesting project for anyone out there. If you're interested in yeah, AppArmor and digging into that, generating a profile for Netatalk would be cool. But moving on. SpiderMonkey was updated. Uh, this is uh, the JavaScript engine from uh, Mozilla that's used in Firefox and others. It's used in uh, the GNOME desktop. Things like GNOME Shell uses that as its backend for the various JavaScript that it executes. There was only one CVE fixed here. Uh, upstream Mozilla describe it as memory safety bugs, so we don't have a lot to go on there. But yeah, that has been fixed for Moz.js, updating it to the latest upstream version 102.12.0 in our uh, 2204 LTS release and the interim releases since that. Then we had a bunch of kernel updates. Most of these vulnerabilities I've talked about in previous episodes, so I'll be very brief here. We had an update for uh, the 4.4 based kernel that's used on 16.04, which is you know now in ESM, as is 14.04. So it's both a GA kernel there and it's a uh, kind of like a hardware enablement kernel for 14.04. If you're still running that, you can opt into using this 4.4 based kernel rather than I think the 3.13 based kernel that was released in uh, Trusty a uh, very long time ago now. Uh, as I say, all of these CVEs are certainly all the most interesting ones we've talked about in previous weeks. Uh, there was an out-of-bounds read in the USB handling code for the Broadcom full Mac USB Wi-Fi driver. Uh, the KVM subsystem mishandled uh, control registers for nested guest VMs. There was an out-of-bounds write in the network queuing scheduler, and that's able to be triggered through an unprivileged user namespace. So if you're worried about that, you could always disable unprivileged user namespaces. And there was a race condition uh, leading to a use after free and therefore privilege escalation in the NetFilter subsystem as well. But yeah, if you want more details on that, go listen back to probably last week's episode. It has a good summary of those. 
Similarly, the 5.15 based kernel in uh, 22.04 and 20.04 that is used on Raspberry Pi and Intel IoTG was updated. Uh, we have a very similar kernel 5.4 based as well for both those platforms as well on 20.04 LTS, which has all the same sorts of uh, things fixed there. A 5.4 based kernel for Xilinx Zinc MP um, platforms was updated as well uh, for a bunch of CVEs as was uh, our GKE kernel in uh, 2204 and 2004 LTS. Uh, this case it was actually for a regression from a previous security update where uh, there was an issue in NFS cache that would cause a severe performance degradation under certain conditions so that was fixed as well and that's it for uh, kernel updates. Uh, then we had an update for Jupyter Core, a uh, single CVE here where uh, Jupyter Core would essentially add uh, the current working directory to the search path and therefore execute untrusted files from the current working directory. That was fixed all the way back to 18.04, which is now in uh, ESM. What else? Vim was updated for a bunch of CVEs, three different CVEs here. And then again, that goes all the way back to our 14.04 release and everything since. Uh, it seems we seem to talk about Vim every you know, couple of weeks or certainly at least once a month, if not more. Uh, and I actually went and had a look. Uh, there's a, a cool uh, graph from uh, cvedetails.com which shows you know, CVEs assigned per project per year. And uh, for Vim, it's only in the handful of you know two or three or something like that every year up until 2021 in which there were 20 CVEs assigned and then 113 assigned during 2022. And actually this year, so far, only 15 appear to have been assigned. So it's kind of lagging behind a little bit, but I'm sure that will um, pick up. It makes me wonder if it's a sign that obviously, you know, people are maybe getting less interested in Vim or maybe all the low-hanging fruit that's been found through all the various uh, fuzzing that's been happening of Vim has been found and fixed. Uh, but yeah, clearly a bit of a target-rich environment still. Uh, if you're into fuzzing, yeah, Vim might still be a good target, but yeah, maybe not for too much longer. Uh, the Python requests library was updated uh, for a single vulnerability where it would leak uh, proxy authorization headers uh, to a destination server if it had got redirected by a HTTPS endpoint and therefore potentially leaking sensitive information through that. Uh, SSSD was updated for a single vulnerability in our 2004 release. In this case, it failed to sanitize uh, the attributes that it would read out of uh, certificates before issuing an LDAP search. So you can imagine a certificate may contain perhaps parentheses uh, in the subject uh, DN field that would then be used directly in the LDAP query and those parentheses would, would confuse the LDAP query. And then you can imagine, you know, maybe if that was uh, benign, that would be okay. It would just have an error, but maybe you could inject content there into that that would then make it go and uh, return other things as part of that query and potentially, you know, say return uh, different credentials for the user. And so therefore you could potentially elevate your privileges as a result. Uh, so that was fixed uh, to sanitize those. Uh, SNI proxy was updated for a buffer overflow when handling of crafted HTTP packets that specified an IPv6 address longer than uh, the maximum possible. It would uh, pass it into a fixed size buffer and you get a buffer overflow as a result of that. And again, that goes back to 1804. What else? GlusterFS was updated for a single vulnerability. It had a stack buffer overread. Now that's generally protected by stack protector on Ubuntu, so that would just lead to a crash uh, and therefore denial of service. And that's from 2204 LTS and those since. We had an update to the latest upstream Firefox release, 114.0.1. Uh, for our 2004 LTS release. In this case, it would uh, crash on startup if the on-disk metadata was corrupted or invalid. Uh, in this case, it was fixed just to obviously indicate an error in that case and continue without that data, which is uh, you know, a much more safer way of operating. 
the Node.js node fetch library was updated for a single vulnerability. Uh, in this case, it would violate the same origin policy if it got redirected to another site because it would then leak the cookie of that originating site that had initially performed the redirect. Uh, Tornado was updated also for an open redirect in this case, so similar vulnerability but different. Uh, essentially, an open redirect allows an attacker to craft a URL to a site that when you visit it, the site will then automatically redirect you to their chosen uh, endpoint. And you can imagine that could be used quite easily for things like phishing attacks and the like, where you see a URL you, and it looks valid, you click on it, and therefore you get redirected somewhere else without noticing, and it looks just like the original, but it's not. And you go and enter your credentials, and yeah, you get phished. Uh, moving on, bin utils was updated for our 2004 LTS release. In this case, there was a heap-based buffer overflow when reading certain debugging info. You could then possibly get code execution as a result of that. It does require the user to run obstump or some other similar utility on an, an attacker-controlled binary. And certainly from our perspective and other distros, we generally assume bin utils and its various utilities are being run on trusted inputs. So if you are using things like obstump and the like for reverse engineering of arbitrary binaries, which does get used a lot, uh, you should probably do that in an isolated environment. Uh, I suggest a VM for that. .NET was updated. You know, Ubuntu is now taking part in uh, Patch Tuesday because we are now shipping .NET from Microsoft. So we updated .NET 6 and 7 for a bunch of different issues in the language runtime there. Uh, Microsoft, kind of like Mozilla, don't provide a lot of details on these. So I don't have a lot to report on those, unfortunately. But hey, if you are using .NET, you are using the latest upstream point releases for those and you're a bit safer now. Uh, Sierras, the uh, library for asynchronous DNS resolution was updated. Uh, this is used by various uh, other utilities like AptCacherNG, uh, FRR, Wireshark, SSSD and others. So they're all potential, I guess, targets of these sorts of vulnerabilities. It had a buffer underflow, as they described it, when looking up crafted IPv6 addresses. Uh, I tried to look up what a buffer underflow was because uh, my understanding of an underflow is usually in the terms of, say, a circular buffer where you've got, say, some uh, input process that throws data into the buffer and some output process that's reading it and the input process isn't putting data into it fast enough to keep up with the output process so then it kind of drains the buffer and there's nothing left for it to read but that's not what's happening here I'm guessing this is more that you have a fixed size buffer and instead of say writing beyond the end of the buffer you're able to actually write beyond the or write in front of the start of the buffer so it's like a, a memory corruption vulnerability uh, but oh, the other side of it um, which is kind of interesting uh, so that would lead to potential denial of service or uh, remote code execution depending on what you can do with the heap there there was also a denial of service that could be triggered uh, from an attacker by forging a zero-length UDP packet in response to a lookup query. That would then cause the resolver to shut down the connection as it would see a zero-byte read. Uh, however, you may have noticed I said the word UDP and connection there, and UDP is a connectionless protocol. Uh, so in this case, it's using the same code path for both TCP and UDP. So in that case, uh, it's using the zero-byte read that it would initially assume from TCP as saying the connection's closed and then say, well, the connection's closed in uh, UDP, but you can't close that. So yeah, it uh, just updated the code to make sure it didn't invalidate that assumption. Uh, glib was updated for a heap of different issues in its handling of g variants looks like someone's probably been fuzzing that i'm not sure if that's come out of dfuzzer the dbus fuzzer or others but yeah, g variant is used for the on the wire encoding of parameters in dbus and certainly other protocols as well you can think of it as a bit like uh, protobufs or other sorts of like um, serialization uh, protocols for encoding certain things on the wire uh, so yeah a bunch of different issues fixed there for that 
And finally, uh, the LibCap2 package, a uh, library for dealing with uh, POSIX capabilities, was updated for a few different issues as well. Uh, had a denial of service through a memory leak and also uh, an integer overflow when handling really large strings as well. So they've all been fixed for uh, LibCap2 as well. And that goes all the way back to our 2004 LTS release. And that is it for the week in security updates. Okay, so uh, one thing I wanted to talk about this week was a recent blog post that I saw from the Google security blog, and it's uh, called Learnings from KCTF uh, Vulnerability Research Program. Uh, they run this uh, KCTF or Kernel CTF as part of their vulnerability rewards program. Uh, essentially, they offer a bug bounty or monetary rewards for people that can report uh, exploitable bugs that they find in GKE, the Google's Kubernetes engine, uh, or the underlying Linux kernel that that runs on. Uh, that's handed out uh, so far 1.8 million US dollars, so pretty good money. Uh, and 60% of submissions for that, though, were exploiting uh, bugs in the new IOU ring subsystem in the kernel. And uh, $1 million of that actually was for bugs in IOU ring. Uh, and IOU ring was actually used in all of the submissions that were able to bypass the various mitigations that they've put in place. Then looking at the stats, it shows uh, looks like bugs in uh, network drivers and file system drivers were after that. But the yeah, IOU ring was certainly out in front and it's obviously a very target-rich environment for vulnerabilities. Uh, as such, then Google have said, look, the threat of this is just a bit too high. Essentially, the newness of this subsystem and its ongoing development uh, is just presenting too much of a risk. There's just potentially too many unknown bugs and vulnerabilities in there that they want to make sure that uh, their platforms and users are protected from. And so, as such, uh, they disabled IOUring in Chrome OS. That was originally enabled back in uh, November last year to increase performance of their Arc VM, uh, and that's used to run Android apps on Chrome OS. So that has been disabled now, uh, actually disabled back in February this year. So it was only enabled for four months and they turned it back off. Clearly the potential performance gain was not enough to outweigh the uh, security risk of that. Uh, they then say that they use SecComp BPF to block access to IOU ring for Android apps. So and uh, it's only then able to be used by system components of Android. And in the future, they plan to use SE Linux to further restrict access to IOU ring so that only select system processes can use that. Uh, and then also they talk about likely uh, disabling it for GKE Autopilot. Uh, and that's where you uh, spin up a, a GKE environment where Google manages essentially the configuration of your Kubernetes cluster. It's a pretty popular way of deploying your Kubernetes on GKE. And uh, so it looks like, yeah, the, the days at least for the moment of IOUing are a bit numbered in Google. And they've also disabled it on their production servers as well. Um, so I guess what this makes me think, you know, what does this mean then for other distros? Obviously in Ubuntu, we have IOUing enabled and as the various bugs and vulnerabilities get found there, we are fixing those, but it does make me sort of think, yeah, I wonder what the risk profile there is for us. Um, being more of a general purpose distribution, the option of disabling IOU ring in our kernel build isn't really something that we would likely do. You know, we want to have that there as a feature, but um, certainly the fact that things like AppArmor is now starting to grow the ability to uh, confine access to or mediate access to IOU ring, something that we'll probably look at making better use of in the future as well as a result of that. But yeah, I just thought that was a you know, really interesting um, blog post from them, certainly talking a bit more about uh, the balance between features and security that we sometimes see. Okay, so the other thing I wanted to bring you all this week was uh, the second part in uh, Andre's discussion of various academic papers around cybersecurity. This week, Andre has picked a paper called Fuzzing Configuration of Program Options, essentially looking at uh, fuzzing of command line arguments for various applications. A uh, very cool kind of look at uh, what fuzzing is and what uh, how you might set that up and how that ran and what kind of uh, results the researchers found. So take it away, Andre. 
Hi there, my name is Andrei, a member of the Ubuntu security team. Today we will continue the section started in episode 194 last month, where we bring cybersecurity academic research closer to the industry. In the second episode, we will check out a recent paper published only three months ago in the journal Transactions on Software Engineering and Methodology, issued by the Association for Computing Machinery. Written by five researchers from various American education institutions, fuzzing configurations of program options approaches the subject of configuration-aware fuzzing and introduces configfuzz, which is a generator of wrappers for programs to be fuzzed. The goal here is to split the random input generated by a standard fuzzer into two parts, one that dictates the configuration of the program and another that is piped as input data to a process instantiated based on the provided executable. But before exploring in depth the approach proposed by this paper, let's take some time to better understand the key concepts that are leveraged. Firstly, what is in fact a program? We can consider it a sequence of instructions that are understood by the processor of a computer. More than that, it interacts with the environment in which it runs, namely the operating system, which can be a proxy for users' interaction. What makes a program useful is that it can take input data and translate it into other forms. For example, consider a static analysis tool that scans code for security issues. This has the source files as an input over which it applies a series of analytical heuristics in order to generate possible security concerns that needs to be tackled by the developers. Besides standard input and files to process, a special form of input data for a program is its configuration. It dictates how the program should behave at runtime regardless of the input data. The configuration can take different forms, for example, command line options and configuration files. We can think about apt, the standard package management system present in Debian-based distros. It has a configuration file named apt.conf, which sets its behavior. For example, the architecture option from the apt group may be used to overwrite the default architecture for which apt was compiled with an arbitrary user-controlled value. Another relevant observation that was identified by the paper we are looking at is the possible relationships between various options. The first type of relation is dependence. To continue the apt-related examples, dash dash install dash suggests is only possible when using in conjunction with the install command line option. On the other hand, we can have options that are contradicting each other. Here we can think about two options that are frequently implemented in CLI programs, namely dash dash silent and dash dash verbose. The last concept we will introduce here is fuzzing, which led us to a small story. During a lightning storm in 1988, Professor Barton Miller from University of Wisconsin observed that garbage characters were introduced in his terminal as a result of electrical interference between the modem and the lightning. He came up with a project for his students, namely the fast generator, in which random input was thrown to Unix utilities to discover bugs. Despite 35 years having passed since that moment, this core definition of fuzzing has remained the same. What makes fuzzing work is that these random inputs make the program enter diverse states. Correlating this with the fact that programmers will try to maximize the utility of the program in normal conditions, the unusual paths that are executed and the unusual input data may trigger issues in the program. 
The root cause for the crashes detected by the fuzzer may vary from null pointer dereferences to running code from a tainted invalid address stored on the program's stack, as many others. A metric that is frequently used to assess the performance of a fuzzer is coverage. It describes the percentage of code paths executed during a fuzzing session. A fuzzer with greater coverage executes a higher percentage of the various code paths and hence is more likely to uncover latent issues in the code. Coming back to the paper, the authors start with two simple observations. Firstly, fuzzing sessions usually assess the security of the default configuration of a program. The developers or researchers who are running the test will not change it, despite the fact that it may generate greater coverage. Secondly, the author stated that a configuration takes value from a discrete set. Based on these two pieces of information, they propose the fuzzer which generates different forms of configuration beside the random data that is fed as input in generic fuzzing sessions. But before building anything too complex, the researchers started with a preliminary study for validating their idea. The applications NM, GIF to PNG and FFmpeg were selected as software under test. For each one, they manually generated multiple configurations and attached AFL, namely American Fuzzy Lab, as a fuzzer. The coverage was measured after finishing the fuzzing sessions with LLVM CAV. They observed that when the configurations vary, the execution proceeds on distinct branches in the control flow graph as compared to fuzzing sessions with only a single default configuration. To use FFmpeg as an example, employing various configurations resulted in 13% extra lines. With these promising results, they implemented a configuration where fuzzer named configfuzz, whose purpose was to fuzz program configuration beside the usual input. The system had as an input the program that should be fast and the grammar. The grammar permitted the definition of all command line options with types like boolean, finite sets of possible values, namely choices, integers, real numbers, and strings. In addition to this, the grammar modeled special cases that could be encountered, like an argument used for indicating the input file, two arguments that are dependent on each other, two arguments that contradict each other, the maximum length of a generated string, and the maximum number of arguments the program may have. The internals of configfuzz can be summarized as a code generator. It produces as an output a C wrapper that translates the input data from a fuzzer into two parts, one that encodes the options to be used and another that is directly fed without further modification as input data. Let's consider a simple program with two arguments, an integer and a string with a maximum length of 10 characters. Given an input of 100 bytes, the first four were converted to an integer and the next 10 to a string. The rest of 86 bytes were directed to the program as regular input. Having this wrapping mechanism in place, ConfigFuzz was integrated in Google's Fuzzbench, which was running two well-known fuzzers, AFL and AFL++. In this way, the wrapped program could receive random input that was processed with the aforementioned splitting mechanism. For evaluating ConfigFuzz, the researchers chose six programs with command line options, namely the three mentioned in the preliminary study, NM, give to png and FFmpeg, plus object dump, CXS field, and XML lint. 
Having these programs, they set different configurations for config files. The first three had the maximum number of generated options set to 1, 2 or the program's maximum number of accepted options. They were instructed to not generate string options in order to ensure consistency in the generated data. The last two config files configurations had the string options enabled but limited to one or two occurrences respectively. The experimental setup consisted of Intel-based CPUs with a total of 48 cores, 192 GB of RAM and Ubuntu 16.04 as an operating system. To cut to the results, let's look at three observations for XML Lint. Firstly, large portions of the code may not be reached with the default configuration. Secondly, the configuration with two arguments outperformed the one with only one argument. The reason is that dash dash HTML interacts with many other options like dash dash push and dash dash memory, which leads to better coverage. Lastly, the string option dash dash XPath was frequently used by fuzzers because it specifies a path in the XML file, which enables multiple paths in the execution. As you can see, these results are very specific to XMLint. To see the results obtained for the other programs, I invite you to take a look at the paper which can be freely accessed in ACM's digital library. Please see the show notes, we've included the link there. Before wrapping this episode, let me tell you about an alternative to fuzzing programs arguments. American Fuzzy Lop has an experimental feature named argv fuzzing. Compared to ConfigFuzz, it does not require a grammar, thus being capable of detecting security issues in the code parsing the arguments. However, since the development of AFL was discontinued a few years ago, I want to mention that this feature was ported to AFL++2, so you can download the official AFL++ Docker image, spin up a container and test this feature by yourself. Whew, as we reach the end of the episode, let's see what we were talking about. We started with some core concepts. What is a program, how it interacts with its environment, the configuration and CLI arguments, and our little story with fuzzing and lightning storms. After that, we've seen the architecture of ConfigFuzz, the solution proposed by the others, but not before examining the results of the preliminary study. Lastly, we reviewed the results and some related work on arguments fuzzing. This being said, if you have any recommendations for improving this section, please contact us at security at ubuntu.com. Until next time. And thanks again for that, Andre. Uh, I've got a bunch of links in the show notes to all the various things that Andre mentioned there, including obviously a link to the paper itself, plus links to things like uh, AFL, AFL++, and others. So if you want to know more details on that, check that out. Uh, but that does bring us to the end of this week's episode. As usual, if you want to get in contact with us about anything that you've heard this week, you can always email us, security@ubuntu.com. We do hang out in the Ubuntu Security channel on libera.chat, and we are on Mastodon. We are at Ubuntu Security at fosterdon.org over there as well. So thanks, everyone, for listening again for another week. I will be back again with you all next week. But until then, remember, keep calm because we've got your back. And I'll speak to you soon. Bye.